welcome. Thank you for joining us today and coming in out of that beautiful Canberra autumn weather that we have outside. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name's Cathy Pilgrim. I am the Assistant Director General of the Executive and Public Programs Division. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call our home. This weekend is our third in our Experience China Weekend series, through which we're exploring Chinese culture, cuisine, art, landscape, architecture and the Chinese diaspora as part of our public programming for the Celestial Empire exhibition. Celestial Empire and its event program would not be possible without the support of a tremendous group of partners. It's been an extraordinary collaboration between government, commercial partners and individual donors and supporters. First and foremost, I thank the National Library of China for sharing its extraordinary collection with us and with all of you. And I hope you will take the opportunity this afternoon to visit the exhibition if you haven't had a chance to already. I thank our partners Shell in Australia, Seven Network, Wanda One, Optus Singtel, Cathay Pacific, TFE Hotels, and our event partners, the ANU Centre for China in the World and Asia Society Australia for their generosity. I also thank our government partners, the Australian Government support for support through the National Collecting Institutions Touring Outreach Program, and also the Australia China Council and we've received great support from the ACT government through Visit Canberra. Importantly, I thank all of you for joining us this afternoon to hear from author Linda Javen. Born and raised in the United States, Linda studied, studied Asian history at Brown University in the state of Rhode Island and followed this with Chinese language study in Taiwan. She has lived in Hong Kong and Beijing, which must have been an invaluable opportunity to absorb all aspects of Chinese culture. Linda moved to Sydney in the 1990s and in 1992 co-edited an anthology of dissident Chinese writers with Jeremy Barmay, who would go on to be the founding director of the Australian Centre on China in the World at the ANU. One critic at the time described their knowledge of Chinese urban culture as unmatched in the Western world. In 1995, Linda was working as a literary translator and freelance writer when her first novel, Eat Me, was published. A comic erotic romp, its subject matter might perhaps seem incongruent with the subject of China. Its status as a bestseller here in Australia and overseas, however, is telling of Linda's incredible skill as a writer, switching between subjects and writing styles with adeptness. Since then, Linda has published another 10 books, as well as a range of short stories, articles and essays. Several of the books she's written are about China, including her most recent 2014 publication, the novel The Empress Lover, and the non-fiction Social and Urban History Guide on Beijing. In the same year, she again partnered with Jeremy Barmay as editor of the China Story Yearbook, an annual publication from the Australian Centre on China in the World. When she answered some questions for the library's blog last weekend, Linda mentioned that she's working on another book, The Education of Proofreader Ding, 
and feeling liberated, writing by hand in notebooks, usually in the park, first thing in the morning. Today, Linda will be sharing with us the perils and seduction of writing about China. So please join me in, in welcoming Linda Javen. Thank you very much, Cathy, for such a generous uh, introduction, and thank you all for coming. Um, I do love libraries, and I want to thank the National Library for having me. When I was a, a little girl, I was a huge reader um, from the time I was very, very little. And um, I always used to get a little certificate from the local library, being the girl who read the most books in the summer holidays. <laughs> but um, I had no idea that you could actually also be a writer. Uh, just didn't, you know, now I think everybody, every young person grows up knowing that they are a writer. <laughs> That's a whole other story. But um, uh, at that time, I had no idea, you know, how do you become a writer? So my goal um, was when I grew up, I wanted to be a librarian because my concept of that job was that you got to sit and read all the books and decide which ones the library bought. <laughs> um, and before I go on I do want to say The Celestial Empire is fantastic it's an extraordinary exhibition I just had a good look at it earlier now one of the things people always say um, in people who interview me or whatever they say so how did you become a sinophile and if I'm if I'm just a little bit, you know, okay, whatever, or if it's on radio and you don't want to correct people, you just let it go. But Sinophile means a lover of China. And I think what they mean is how did you become somebody who writes about China, you know, this sort of thing. It's very interesting how the word Sinophile gets completely mixed up with the word Sinologue, you know, or um, Sinologist. Uh, it's a very interesting slip of the tongue, and it also tells us a lot about how in the West and in Australia, um, in many places, we look at an interest in China as automatically being a kind of an uncritical love of China. Um, it's when people say, you know, uh, why do you, you know, why do you love China so much? I'm like, well, I, who said I love China? You know. It's under my skin, as the topic of this talk implies. But I love it, I hate it, I like it, I, some days I get the shits with it. I, it it's a place. It's a place of 1.4 or more billion individuals. It has some of the most magnificent art in the world, and it has some of the worst kitsch. You know, it has some of the most magnificent architecture and it has some of the ugliest new buildings you'll find anywhere. It has fantastic, brilliant people, really people who are so civilized they could define the word civilized. And it has people who, who are brutal, you know, um, and, and horrible in everything they do. People who put um, plastic in the powder that babies, uh, you know, baby powder, uh, killing babies. And then they continue to do it, you know. Um, these, this, that's unbelievable. Um, and then you have people who are so wonderful. You have every different type of person. And the real answer to why I, I'm interested in China is because it's everything. You can find everything in the world there. You can find every extreme. You can find every kind of good and every kind of bad, every kind of beauty and every kind of ugly. 
And that is fascinating. And that's what's kind of kept me at it all these years. Um, I do admit when I was younger, I did have a touch of the sinophilia, you know, oh, China, you know, you're learning about it and everything is so wonderful about China. And I, No, it's not. It's, there's great and there's not great. And um, it's interesting. But from the Chinese perspective, looking at the world, there's many different perspectives. There's 1.4 billion perspectives, but the official one, um, the official communist perspective has always been either you are a friend or you are an enemy of the Chinese people, an anti-Chinese element of fan hua fenzi. So you are either a hao a good friend, or you are an enemy. And this also is one of the reasons that I think people ask this question is we're almost forced into this very strange and unnatural dichotomy, um, this relationship with China. The, China, the Chinese government, Chinese media, will often use the expression, hurts the feelings of the Chinese people. So if you say something that offends the government, you have hurt the feelings of the Chinese people, or 1.4 billion of them, even if at the time you happen to be defending some of their human rights. Or you happen to be defending a Chinese person who has defended their own human rights and is now sitting in prison, if you support them, if you say, I think Liu Xiaobo is a very brave person, the Nobel Peace Laureate, um, who is doing an 11-year sentence in prison, um, if you say that, you have hurt the feelings of the Chinese people. But have you really? Um, when you are a writer writing about China, you are never entirely free of expectations whether it's, oh, I'm reading something by a sinophile, you know, that kind of expectation, or whether it's the expectation of the, the, both the Chinese government and of Chinese citizens who are influenced um, by that official rhetoric, there is a sense that you, you're doing the wrong thing, you're doing a kind of a naughty thing if you write critically or you, you write honestly about some of the things that are on the worst side of the spectrum. Um, but I'm going to get back to that and those moral and ethical conundrums um, in a moment. But I think I should say a word or two about how I got to where I am now. Um, as people go, how, you know, because now it looks, you know, I do, I do film translations, I do all sorts of things. I write books, I write uh, novels about China, I, I do travel writing, I do everything. Um, and it seems like I was always headed here, but just as the story about the library and my ambition to be a librarian shows it, everything was always a bit accidental with me, always a bit serendipitous. And I have no really great advice for any young person who wants to end up in any kind of position that's vaguely like mine. I don't even know what position I'm in, but, you know, in a place, um, because it really has been a series of accidents. I followed, when I was in high school, I, I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe, how, how do you become a writer? Mm, that would be kind of interesting. And my high school um, decided to have its very first creative writing class. And they decided that, that what they would do would be to select the students who were worthy and showed potential. Um, I think there were like 11 or 16 people allowed into this very special class. <laughs> And I was like, 
and I wasn't chosen. So um, <laughs> I'm quite delighted in a very um, bitchy sort of way to say that none of the people who went were accepted into that class, to the best of my knowledge, have ever been published. <laughs> um, I went to university wanting to save the world. I was very involved in political activism, progressive social movements. Uh, at the time, it was the Ralph Nader um, movement in the United States. I was involved with um, one of his uh, in environmental and citizens action groups when I was in high school, went to uni, and I'd said to the people I was working with, do you think I should take... Um, um, uh, biological sciences or ecological sciences. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not you. You should take political science. So I entered uni expecting to take political science um, as my major and I stumbled into um, a Chinese studies course. Uh, really stumbled because I was I was looking for interesting courses to take to supplement the political science um, courses that were part of the major and I took a Latin course, a course on French New Wave films, you know, anything that interests me. And I said to an upperclassman, um, can you recommend a really good lecturer, you know, in a, I, I, something I might not have thought of. And he said, oh, take Introduction to East Asian History. And that was that, really. Um, and my professor, I was so interested, I just kept taking more and more, and I ended up with a double major, political science and East Asian history. Um, he made me take Chinese. I was dragged kicking and screaming into, you know, Chinese language studies because I was convinced that I would never... I didn't do well at, in French in high school. I was like... <laughs> but I turned out to love it. So I was very, very... I'm eternally grateful to Professor Lee Williams for making me take Chinese language studies. Um, but even then, there was no sense that any of this was going to be useful in the least because... It was the 1970s, and China was closed, especially to the United, you know, to Americans. So that was I'm now an Australian citizen, but at the time I didn't have Australian citizenship, and so as an American, you couldn't possibly go to um, to China. Uh, the only things you could do with a degree in Chinese studies were either go on to do a PhD, and I hadn't ever left the country. I'd barely left my little home, hometown, an oppressive little place called New... No, I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> so my mother might listen to this. But, um, yes, I barely, you know, I hadn't left the United States. I was like, I don't want to sit and do a PhD. Um, the other options were diplomacy or espionage, and I thought... Nah. <laughs> so I went to Taiwan to further my studies of, of um, Chinese language, and I started writing like crazy, um, poetry mainly, but I also started writing, trying to write novels and everything else. Um, I then moved to Hong Kong, and long story, I got a job with the Oxford University Press as a, like, a sub-editor, putting commas in English language textbooks. At that time, um, I was also still writing poetry and I sent it around in a magazine called Asia Week, um, published one of my poems. And being a complete moron, um, I called them up and said, you didn't tell me you were going to publish my poem. <laughs> anyway, somehow, through some miracle, the editor, the literary editor, asked me to lunch. I was like, hmm, okay. Um, so we had lunch and... He said, I must have met, he must have said, what's your background, you know? And that poem was about China. It was like, it was a Sinophile poem. I, I've put that way in the back of my memory vault and hope that there are no copies in existence. Um, but 
it, you know, I was in that romantic stage of um, ah, lotuses. I don't know what I wrote. Um, anyway, uh, we had lunch, and he asked me about my background. I told him um, about my Chinese studies at university and Chinese language. And he said, do you do book reviews? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, I've never done a book review in my life, of course. And he said, how long does it take you to do a review? Now, now I know that you generally get three weeks um, to a month, you know, to do a book review. I said, I thought, what do I say? What's the right answer? And I said, a week? <laughs> he said, okay, here's two. I'll give you two books and you get two weeks. So two weeks later, and I was working full time. I, you know, two weeks later, I handed in two book reviews and he gave me two more books. And within a year, I'd done something like 46 book reviews. So they hired me. <laughs> and I, that's how I got my break into journalism. So, you know, what can I say that's of use to anyone else? You know, <laughs> bluff. <laughs> and in terms of becoming a translator, um, through Jeremy Barmey, I met Yang Xianyi and Gladys Yang, who were running the um, Panda Books uh, for the Foreign Languages Press in China. I was beginning to travel quite a lot to China at the time. And, of course, I was covering China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong for Asia Week, so I did a lot of travel. And I got to know them and eventually got some opportunities to do a little bit of translation. But the big, really the big break, because what I do mostly now is film translation, was... Again, totally random. I was sitting on a, a train in um, the MTR, in, <laughs> which had recently opened in Hong Kong. It was the time of the Hong Kong Film Festival, a complete film buff. I would go to these... Um, I would take my holidays then and just watch five films a day until my eyes turned square, you know. It was just, and I'd do this for a week until... I almost felt like vomiting, you know. It was, it was quite a, a thing. So I was looking forward to the festival. It was just about to begin, and... Um, I had heard all about this great film, Yellow Earth, that was changing the, you know, the buzz was about Yellow Earth, this first film of the fifth generation of Chinese film directors. Um, and I heard that maybe the director and cinematographer were coming. But now, this is so hard for younger people to imagine a time before social media, you know, when you would have no idea what these people looked like, really, when they dropped in at the air, you know, it was just, it was a very, very different time. So I'm sitting on the train, I'm reading some, I was reading an English language novel, I think, um, so I didn't, you know, set off any sort of weird alarm bells, I was sitting there, and across from me were these three Chinese people from the mainland, at the time there were hardly any Chinese from the mainland in, in Hong Kong, so I, I listened to the Mandarin, and I'm like, oh, Sounds a little Beijingish on one of them, you know, and you know, on two, um, two of them, they're very Beijing Mandarin, and I was like, oh. Another was definitely North Northwest. I was like, oh. And um, they're talking about movies, and they're talking about the studio, and I thought, I'm just going to take a punt here. I said, I, I looked up and I said, yeah, I said, you know, could I just ask you a, a question? And they went, <gasps> you know, and um, I said, are you from Beijing Film Studio? And they went, <laughs> and <laughs> they were completely just, you know, I was like, oh my God, this foreigner was talking to, because at that time, really, there weren't that many um, Westerners who spoke Chinese, who mixed in, there weren't that many Mandarins, you know, they didn't get to travel much, um, 
It was their first trip outside China, I believe. So um, <laughs> I said, oh, you wouldn't happen to know if Zhang Yimou and Chiang Kai-ge uh, have come to uh, Hong Kong um, because I'm going to see the film Yellow Earth and I would love to meet them. And one went, Water Chiang Kai-ge. I'm Chiang Kai-ge. And the other one went, Water Zhang Yimou, I'm Zhang Yimou. <laughs> and the third was a woman from Beijing Film Studio. So <laughs> I, became, <laughs> I became friends with them and the friendship lasted. Um, you know, I still do all of Chiang Kai-ge's films. But at the time they said, look, we know that our films, there's a lot of there's, there's something that's blocking us, and it's bad translation, but the studios control everything. They're state-run studios, and we don't have any say in it. We would love for you to translate our films once we have the money to do so. And, of course, through them and various things, I began to meet other Chinese filmmakers, and they were all like, oh, you know, because people constantly complained to them about the state of the subtitles or told them how bad they were. And so it came to pass. They got money to do their films um, as privatization got into the film industry and so on, and a foreign investment. And um, that's how I became a film translator. So again, you know, what do you say? You know, <laughs> ride the subway. Um, <laughs> and then even eat me. Um, I was doing all these very worthy articles on China for the Australian press. I would all this knowledge and information that I'd, I'd somehow managed to um, collect, you know, and I would take serious, I would work, do serious work on an article and get paid $200. Um, it was really hard. And I was always writing and writing poetry and writing short stories anyway. It was fun. Um, it was what I really loved. And I wrote um, a filthy story. I was actually looking for some, some erotica I looked at my shelf, I was like, yeah, I've read that a thousand times, you know. <laughs> um, and at that time, there was no sex in the city, there was no chiclet, there was nothing like that. Female erotica, where it existed, tended to be kind of on guilt and sort of rape fantasies and sort of weird, you know. It wasn't, it was a very odd moment. Um, you had, for example, a story of O, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I liked memoirs of a woman of pleasure. Fanny Hill, but there was nothing that I wanted something funny and I wanted something, you know. So I just sat down and I wrote a dirty story and um, I showed it to a friend of mine, Kathy Bale, who's now the publisher of New South Press. And she said, That's hilarious. And she said, I've got a few more, you know, little editorial input. And I went, mm. So I went back, half an hour of revision. She said, You know, I think you should send that to Australian Women's Forum, which is a magazine that doesn't exist anymore, but used to publish like male centerfolds and was a kind of a, a, it was an intelligent feminist dirty magazine for women. And so I sent it off. Why not? And back came a check for like $2,000 or something, or one, I can't even remember what it was, but it was knocked me. It had three zeros, which. <laughs> had never happened in the history of freelance journalism in my life up to that point. So that was amazing. Um, and I ended up being approached by Michael Haywood of text publishing. Uh, by then I'd had two stories published in um, Australian Women's Forum. And he said, do you have a, a book-length essay on China in you? And I said, yes, but I also have a 
pornographic novel in me, I think. And he, anyway, that became Eat Me. Eat Me became a bestseller, and my fiction was launched. Um, my fiction career was launched. It was very, again, like, <laughs> what lessons are there for other people? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> now, when I started doing the... Obviously, as I began writing fiction, I began thinking about, can I mix China and fiction? How do you do that? Because I have these two separate parts of my life. And when I was reviewing, it was in the age of uh, James Clavell. Who remembers James Clavell? The white hero rides in, saves the day in Japan or China in some form. There were many. He wasn't the only one. There were a lot of people who wrote like this. So you have this kind of white, male, handsome hero who, who arrives in a historical place, you know, in an historical time in China and somehow does something very heroic, wins a beautiful Chinese woman and gallops off into the sunset. And that was basically writing about China or it was these earnest missionary things that really want, made me want to vomit. Um, and then, of course, there's Pearl Buck. And how do you write like Pearl Buck if you don't have the experience of Pearl Buck? And was she really right anyway when she was writing from the standpoint of the Chinese peasantry? You know, it was, it was all these mysteries, you know, and they're mysteries I haven't totally solved yet. But the paradigms did not... The paradigms that were available at the time um, were just crazy. And by the way, I noted downstairs, it was very interesting, there's a French uh, thing, um, a book about um, uh, China, and it's open to a page, and there's a, a Buddhist priest, um, and it talks about this absurd religion and the priest of the sect of Fo. Because <laughs> in China, Fo is Buddhism. So, you know... There are a lot of problems, and there always have been, in writing about China. Um, and, by the way, it's mirrored in problems of the Chinese writing about Western, um, uh, Westerners or Western life. Um, two easy examples, one from the exhibition downstairs is the um, boxer, there's a uh, a series of, I think it's a woodcut um, prints, where the boxers portray um, the Westerners um, doing all sorts of disgusting things with their pig religion of Christianity. And, uh, you know, it's not like it's only the West that got that that got China wrong, China very often, and still gets the West wrong. If you look at the roles of foreigners in most Chinese movies, they're quite absurd. Um, and you look at something like a Beijinger in New York, which was a series of TV series from the 1990s, I think. Um, and it has at one memorable scene, the hero played by Jiang Wen. Um, I can't remember whether he's with a, a Western prostitute, with an American prostitute, or whether she's just a girl that he's with, but he showers her with American dollars, and she's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> like, <laughs> Okay. Um, at the time, too, even journali journalism was also tricky. I mean, you had the China watcher, so the position was very much on the outside. You had the China hand, as if, you know, there were these, these people, oracles, who could pronounce on China, but who were not Chinese. I mean, this has evolved tremendously and thankfully to the point where we now have, in institutions like the CIW, the practice of new sinology, which is a conversation um, between you know, Chinese scholars of China, Western scholars on China, everybody is is communicating on an equal footing um, and there's an acceptance within New Sinology, not within the Chinese world as a whole, of people, you can earn the right to have a say 
on Chinese life. But that's not something that all China agrees on. And basically, it goes back to that other thing of, you know, are you a friend or are you a foe? Um, when I started to write, when I, when I began as a journalist, um, working for Asia Week back in the 1980s, uh, you actually, it was so different from today. You had to get permission to travel anywhere. So you had to get permission if you wanted to go to Wuhan, you wanted to go to Shanghai from Beijing, you had to apply and get official permission. I thought I would read um, uh, something from um, Monkey and the Dragon, which um, is now, sadly, it's out of print. Um, but it's, it's available as an e-book, which I'm very happy about. Uh, and this... This um, is uh, a little bit, um, it takes place in 1985. During that same holiday in August 1985, I went with the poet Yang Lien and some other friends to the new disco at the Great Wall Sheraton, where we were told in no uncertain terms that I could go in, but my Chinese friends couldn't. Dogs and Chinese not admitted, Yang Lien spat in disgust, quoting the infamous, though possibly apocryphal, pre-revolution sign in a Shanghai park. China was changing, and not at all. We left together. The next day, Yang Lien and I embarked on a long-planned trip to Sichuan. To celebrate our arrival in Chengdu, his friends took us to their favorite club. We just started to dance when the security people grabbed me by the arms and marched me out. Here, Chinese were welcome, but not foreigners. One of our group, a People's Liberation Army soldier, cursed and yelled at the security guy. We pulled him away <laughs> and walked back to the house of the friend where we were staying, fuming about what a fucked up world it was. The next day, our host's brother, who worked at the Public Security Bureau, came to see him. Have you gone completely insane, he accused, having a foreigner stay at your house? Our host was indignant. Why can't I invite anyone I like to stay? What does it matter what color their skin is? But I didn't want to cause him any trouble, so I moved into a hotel. The whole gang followed me up to my room to have showers, jump on the bed, take silly photos, and bask in the air conditioning. The group of us planned to drive in an army jeep to a beautiful lake district, Jiujiaigou, several hours outside Chengdu. Now it's a tourist destination with its own airport, but then it was closed to any foreigner without a travel permit from the Public Security Bureau. Daily, we trundled over to the cop shop to check on my application. Finally, after stringing me along for almost a week, they told me I couldn't go. No reason given. My outraged friends proposed to smuggle me along anyway. I had already dyed my hair black, and, I was fa and I'm fairly short, so if I kept a cap low over my face, the theory was it could work. And that's when Yang Lien spotted the security men who, it turned out, were trailing us everywhere, clumsily ducking behind trees or telegraph poles whenever we turned and stared them down. Why were they there? The friends asked around. It seemed that the problem lay with me. Was it my association with Yang Lien, me a foreign journalist, and him an underground poet, whose works had been attacked during the recent anti-spiritual pollution campaign? Was it the even more subversive combo of a journalist and PLA soldier? Or had my friendship with Ho De Jian, a, a singer, songwriter, defector from Taiwan, made me a surveillance tar target? 
Our source couldn't reveal any more than that. My case, it seems, was in the hands of the relatively new Ministry of National Security, which was charged with ensuring the security of the state through effective measures against enemy agents, spies, and counter-revolutionary activities designed to, designed to sabotage or overthrow China's socialist system. I waved off my mates in their jeep full of tents and hunting rifles and prepared to return to Beijing. The PLA soldier, who was also a poet, couldn't go to Jiuzhaigou uh, either. He'd had his leave cancelled at the last moment when one of his poems turned up in a Taiwan anthology. Some American had read it at the house of one of his friends in Chongqing and without asking the author's permission, entered it in a poetry competition in Taipei. The mainland authorities might promote direct contacts with the island, but any citizen who tried it on their own had to deal with the consequences. Um, back in Beijing, I moped around Hodajen and Changlin's place. I asked them if they felt okay about me staying with them while the security apparatus was watching me. They assured me they weren't the least bit worried about me having grown a tail. After all, I was once a political prisoner in Taiwan, Ho declared. What are they going to do to me here? Ho wasn't always in complete touch with reality. <laughs> so that's, um, that gives you a little bit of a taste of, um, of experience in China when, I mean, it's, there's a saying called nei wai you bie. There is a difference between the inside and the outside, insiders and outsiders. China, Zhongguo, foreign countries are simply outside countries. If you look at the map downstairs of the forbidden of the um, of Beijing, there's an old map of Beijing. It's very beautiful and detailed, and you can see very clearly there's three walls. So the outer wall is the is the city wall, and then there's another wall, and that's the imperial city wall, which is the big palace, and then in that is the forbidden city. So. Even within the Chinese context, there's nei wai you bie, so there's a difference. You, there's, everything is always defined, inside or outside. And that's just one easy illustration of that. Um, so where does the foreigner fit in all this? These, these are themes that just kind of circle around in my head all the time. You know, the, everybody knows the term foreign devils from, from the early days of, you know, contact and all that and big nose. And, and um, now, Wai Guaren, the kind of affectionate name is Lao Wai, old foreign. You know, it's sort of, oh, he's a Lao Wai. There's nothing offensive in that term. Unless you just think constantly be calling, being called outside is offensive, which it's not really because language takes on the meaning of the context. Um, I thought I would read from a short piece from my book on Beijing. Um, that's it's um, from the history section, but it's a little bit of a of a fun piece that I've I've put in on its own. It's called Exotica, um, and it's I've situated it in the Yuan Dynasty, which was the time when Kublai Khan um, had his capital in Kambalik, today's Beijing, um, and. Uh, Marco Polo was uh, obviously the most famous chronicler in the west of, of Kublai Khan's um, uh, Kambalik. Marco Polo tells us that at Kublai Khan's great banquets, Mongolian barons helped 
foreigners who do not know the customs of the court from committing such literal faux pas as stepping on the raised threshold when entering the banquet, an act punishable by a beating. The Khan's successors didn't make it so easy for foreigners in Beijing to cross that threshold. Jesuits squeaked into the Ming and Qing courts only because they possessed knowledge that the courts found useful. It took an unequal treaty forced on the Qing in 1844 to legalize teaching Chinese to foreigners and another to sanction their residence in Beijing. By the time the Australian George Ernest Morrison arrived as correspondent for the London Times in 1897, imperialism had forced open China's doors, but at the price of China's humiliation. In 1949, Mao shut those doors on all but communism's fellow travelers. Thirty years later, Deng opened them once more, but on China's terms. Today, nearly 200,000 foreigners reside in Beijing, 70,000 of them students. Despite the conspicuous of those of non-Asian background, the majority hail from other Asian countries. Wang Fujing was briefly named Morrison Street in English after the Australians, but foreigners rarely leave as much of an impression on Beijing as it leaves on them. The exceptions are those who have treated it badly, from the French and British who sacked the Yuan, the old summer palace in 1860, to the British man in 2012 whose drunken, whose drunken harassment of a Chinese woman led to his beating and viral shaming on the internet. Marco Polo wrote of the threshold rule that guests were, quote, not expected to stick at this in going forth again, for at that time some are like to be worse, the worse for liquor and incapable of looking to their steps. But these days the exception is that they better do so. <laughs> so the position of the foreigner in China has always been one of, of a certain kind of negotiation. Um, so given that, like, how do you actually write about this country. And if you look at the way people do it, it kind of goes from lyrical to very jaded um, and cynical. Um, the, the, the approach, what you're actually looking at, can go from human rights abuses down to the very innocuous, anodyne, colorful customs of the minority areas. Um, you know, there's this whole gamut. And as somebody who's written on China, you know, my whole adult life, it, I think, yes, um, 30-something years, um, 30, wow, yeah, we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've done that kind of, I mean, most recently, uh, the February issue of Qantas's uh, in-flight magazine has uh, my perfect day in Beijing, and that fits a certain formula where you pick uh, eight to ten things that somebody can do and actually get to within the space of, you know, a morning till late night sort of um, time frame. And so that's, that's got to be a little bit happy and upbeat, and, and it is. And I give people a Beijing that is very much, because I had to think about realities of moving from place to place, it's very much centered on the imperial area. Um, but that's what you do. And then I've written about human rights. I've written about Tiananmen. You know, I've done all that. Um, now, there's a, a sense that there's a kind of a... <laughs> this is just going to touch on something. You know, I don't have time to, to read everything I'd like to read to you. But um, 
This is from my novel, A Most Immoral Woman, which is about a, uh, an affair that George Morrison had with a, an American nymphomaniac heiress <laughs> in, two, in 1904. True, true story, historical novel based on all the evidence that I could dig up both here and in the California State Archives where her family's letters are, etc., etc. But this, um, this isn't one of the sexy passages, uh, but it is a little bit about writing about China and how... In a funny way, it's almost gendered. Um, on the following morning, Morrison slapped on his trilby, slung his cape over his shoulders, and loped through the dusty streets towards and then through Tianmen Gate. Once south of the gate, he plunged into the familiar roiling public excitement that the Chinese called the hot and noisy, which characterized that part of Beijing, uh, Peking, just south of the Tartar Wall, known as the Chinese city. Here was enterprise, from the streetside barbers, scribes, and fortune tellers to the bustling shops. Overhead dangled painted shop signs in the shapes of the goods on offer, wooden combs, decorative glass grapes, gourds for wine, the soles of men, men's boots. From a pharmacy with its infinite, infinite small drawers of herbs wafted the mysterious close smells of Chinese medicine onto the street. From a tea house came the staccato of a storyteller's clappers, and already a crowd was forming outside the heavenly happy tea garden in Polishing Street, where one could watch moving pictures, electric shadows, on equipment brought all the way from Germany. Further south were the wilder diversions of the Heavenly Bridge District, famous for its sing-song girls, flower houses, and efficient gangs of tatterdemalions who could strip a man of his watch and purse before he sensed them coming. Other foreigners of Morrison's acquaintance were wont to declaim at length about the quotidian delights of the ancient capital. His friend, Lady Susan Townsend, was even writing a book about them, My Chinese Notebook, she was going to call it, and you can find this probably in this library, definitely in the Menzies in the ANU. She had shown him the draft. It was full of vivid descriptions of such adventures as riding in rough peaking carts, once was enough for Lady Susan, and visiting opium dens. Morrison was not immune to the exotic, the strange, the constant sensory assault that was China, yet he could not but feel that such literary effusions were the proper domain of women, dilettantes, and professional travelers, not the professional journalist which, of course, were all men. Since the publication of an Australian in China almost 10 years earlier, he'd barely confessed them to his journal. So in this, it's a kind of a little bit of a game I'm playing because I'm writing in third person but in Morrison's sensibility, and yet I'm doing the lazy Susan thing, a lady Susan thing of giving you the whole sensory experience of walking into Tianmen. Um, very aware that time is passing. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, I was going to read you a lot more. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit. I'll just speak a little bit, and, and if you want me to read more, I, I, I will. Um, my struggling all the time with how do you write? Do you write about foreigners in China, or do you write? Do you try to write from the standpoint of Chinese people? Can you do that? Can you not do this? It's it's a constant when you. you know, of course, I can write from the standpoint of a Chinese person because they're a person. But all the politics around it lay on all kinds of issues, you know? I mean, I have spent so much of my life in China. I know the Chinese friends who I know better than some of my, you know, Australian friends and vice versa, obviously. But what, what is it that stops you from, from, from 
traveling there. I mean, we don't worry so much about writing, uh, say, an Australian novel in which there's Greek characters and there's Italian characters and there's immigrants and there's this and that. You know, it's, it's a very interesting conundrum, but it absolutely exists. Now, with Empress Lover, I took a big plunge. The first part of the book is narrated by a character called Linny, <laughs> who is actually a Eurasian, or possibly really know what she is. Um, and the second or the final third of the book is narrated by a Chinese character. Um, and their two stories blend in, uh, in, in a way that brings the central mystery of the book, which is <laughs> put very briefly as how did she possibly receive a letter from a man who's been dead 20 years asking her to meet him at the hour of the rat in a bar that doesn't seem to exist. <laughs> Their stories come together um, through that. Um, but in this, one of the things that I did do as well was assume for the foreign character the right to speak about something about Chinese affairs that affect her, which is essentially my position too. I was there in 1989 Tiananmen, the massacre, and all of that deeply affected me. Um, so I have the right to speak about it. You know, I don't see why I don't. Um, especially when people who sometimes claim that you don't have the right or claim the right to speak about it are people who weren't there, who were so young they weren't even born then, but have received a patriotic education that tells them that what we who were there and many, many other people have documented didn't happen because they don't know. The politics of writing about China is really, really interesting. So at this point, my character is walking through a snowstorm. Um, I picked my way across, it's night. I picked my way across the city, with, the street with care, for it was still dangerously icy. Once on the north side of the road, I looked for a familiar hutong, one I'd calculated would lead me towards the place I was going, that mysterious bar. Where I was certain it should begin, however, there stood a gaudy, gargantuan new seafood restaurant with a giant neon prawn waving its multicolored feelers from the roof. I may have been disoriented by the snow, but suspected that the charming laneway I was looking for existed no more. Developers had logged Beijing's historic Hutong neighborhoods like the Amazon, relentlessly driving a unique and grand urban civilization towards extinction. I could never reconcile in my mind how the inheritors of this magnificent ancient culture could be so, both so rightly proud of their past and so perversely active in its destruction. The old city was disappearing at the speed of memory, leaving only its stories to hover over once historic sites like lonely ghosts. It wasn't just physical heritage under attack. In its media, schools, and museums, the party state was single-mindedly sandblasting the rich, complex, and untidy history of the country itself, cleansing it of ambiguity, purging it of shame, and scouring it of blood, unless the stains were conveniently on the hands of enemies. So I just thought, yeah, I actually have the right to write that. I have experienced the disappearance of the hutongs that I love. I have seen how the scouring of history has taken place. Um, I really am conscious of the fact I should be stopping for questions. I'm simply going to tell you about two topics that I was going to talk about, and if you want me to talk about it more, then I'm very happy to. One is how a translator is more than a translator of language, but a translator of customs and so on, and how translation, the documents you translate, 
can also change with time. And there's an example in my quarterly essay found in translation of an ancient Chinese saying that comes from a true historical story that has, when you say those four characters as a saying, the meaning has changed over time in China. Mao gave it one meaning. History had given it another. You can look at it in many different ways. And that is one of the conundrums for the translator. What is the meaning? Meanings, especially in a, in a country where with such a long history, with such a long literary tradition, how do you find the meaning of what you are trying to translate? So there's that. And I was going to speak a little bit about an opera that I wrote, a bilingual opera. Um, the libretto's finished, the music is finished, but very long story. We put it this way, there were murders, there was the slaying of a tiger, there was betrayals, there were seductions, and that was just behind the scenes. Um, <laughs> but it was a, an opera that was commissioned uh, by the National Peking Opera Company, and I wrote it under the guidance and mentorship of the then president of the National Peking Opera Company. Um, and um, it also attempts to get into the head of not just five Chinese characters, but five iconic Chinese characters that every single person in China knows and probably has an opinion on. So that was fun. <laughs> I will stop now. I've been very naughty. I'm only giving you 10 minutes instead of 15 for questions, so I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> Thank you so very much, Linda, for sharing with us your life, your experience with China, your relationship with China, and for giving us two of the best pieces of career advice I've heard, <laughs> to bluff and to ride the subway. So please join me in thanking Linda. <laughs> <laughs>